0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week is part two of our Ignoble Prize special, where we flip things upside down. Are anyone really ever skilled at lying? And if so, who are the best liars? Plus, how can you lie to your brain to help relieve a physiological sensation? Plus... Does inverting and changing your view of the world really help you see things clearer? You find out with the Ig Nobel Prize Special Part 2. So for those of you who missed last week's episode, we're going to be celebrating the Ig Nobel Prizes, which are an award given to science that makes you laugh and makes you think. And this aspect of science can reward some of the most unusual and outstanding research work with recognition that it truly deserves. Last week we covered uh, the Biology Prize for people who turn themselves into goats or badgers or foxes or other animals using prosthesis and adapting their traits in the environment in order to understand and better relate to and determine what senses and what the experiences and requirements are like for living like such an animal. And we also heard about the, the Prize for Reproduction, which is awarded for putting pants or underpants of different types of materials on rats and then humans, now this week we're going to take a different turn and look at the difficult area of deception, lie, but also tricking the mind as well as understanding personalities of inanimate objects. Now, pretty much everyone at some point in their life has told a lie of some kind. Sometimes we like to classify lies as either good or bad. Uh, sometimes we think lying uh, by, through the act of not saying anything is also another type of lie. But when it comes to lying, who are the best liars and how would you even know? Well, this question is one that's been asked and to an extent answered by a group of researchers from Ghent University in Belgium. Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, Amsterdam University, and Maastricht University in the Netherlands as well. And both of these researchers have all have come together to try and put a finger on what makes the best liar, and what age group, and what bracket. And they did this by asking the liars themselves, which might seem a little bit contradictory. I'm sure you've all heard the famous logic puzzle where you have a the, the one true Scotsman logic puzzle, which is a variant on many of an ancient idea, where there's an island where the people can earn the answers in lies, and then they say that they're not a liar, and then you have to try and understand if they're telling the truth. But if they make that statement, are they actually telling the truth or a lie? And that's very kind of complex little trickery in word games. But when you actually want to conduct a serious psychological study on the benefits or the propensity for different groups of people's ability to lie, then you really have to ask the question carefully. And that's what these researchers actually teamed together to try and do. Now, first, their paper, which won the Ig Nobel Prize, was called From Junior to Senior Pinocchio, a Cross-Sectional Lifespan Investigation of Deception. And that gives you a hint to where they are going with their study. The fundamental question they wanted to answer is does lying change with age are older people or younger people better at being liars does age give you more experience which helps in the lying process or is the sweet naivety of youth making you a better liar and to test that they needed a very large sample set because with any study you need a large amount of data so they took a a thousand and five visitors to a science museum and science museums across the different countries and they subjected them to a series of tests and questionnaires they were aged between six and 77 years old so they get a good spread of diversity there so the first thing they did with these visitors to the science museum in amsterdam was gave them a survey questionnaire and in that questionnaire, they were asked to provide personal information, for example, as well as asking how many lies they've told in the last 24 hours. Then, they were given a, a pretty much a standard psychological test for lying proficiency, during which they were given a whole series of simple true or false audible statements. Things like, is the grass green? Can pigs fly? And a whole bunch of other type of really basic uh, tests you know asking them to make statements that we know are lies to see how well they actually lie and at the same time the labels flashed on screen identifying the buttons they should press if the statement is true or false and then there's also an instruction that appears on the screen that tells them whether or not they should lie or tell the truth and so that way you sort of build up a sample set asking them to lie asking them to detect lies and asking them to not lie or lie on command so you get a whole a bunch of a base mark of their ability and propensity to both detect lies and to make lies themselves. Now, the researchers came to some very interesting conclusions at the end of this study, though it's not really going to come to a sh- as a shock to anyone who has children. Lying accuracy and proficiency basically improves throughout childhood. They sort of start from a very low level with younger kids and then sort of peak at about the young adult range. Once you hit adulthood though, lying actually decreased pretty rapidly and that was sort of a very interesting type curve where really the peak lying ability lay in adolescence, which I guess to an extent makes sense. They also found that most people actually don't lie very often, but a few people lie a lot. That was kind of basically the self-survey test that they did as well. So whilst they had these participants, they actually gave them a third type of test. And this one is a stop signal test. Basically, it's an inhibition control test. They're asked to hold down a key and keep it pressed. And they were given a signal to stop, and they had to stop when they were told to do so. And it basically measures a function in the brain called inhibitory control. And what they actually found that was a very interesting correlation is that the rise and fall in lying frequency and proficiency actually mirrors the strength and the rise and fall of someone's ability for inhibitory control. So what this shows is actually supports the hypothesis that lying places greater demands on the brain's basically like executive control center, the decision-making, the key critical decision-making facility. It's because lying actually involves keeping track of multiple ideas in your head and keeping them separate in order so you can lie. You have to keep your story straight, the true one and the false one. And that requires you to inhibit an impulse to say something that you know is true to actually switch to your other story. That's inhibition control, which makes sense. And it's all sort of a way of tying back to which parts of the core responses here are at play in both our brain as well as our psychological state. So this is a great piece of interesting and fascinating research from a group of researchers from the Netherlands, from Belgium and from America working together and that's why they won the Ig Nobel Prize for psychology in 2016. Lying is something almost human in nature. But another interesting aspect of lying is the kind of deceit and trickery aspect of it. And a bunch of neuroscientists from Germany, the University of Lübeck, have actually done some very interesting studies relating to lying to your brain in order to fill a physiological need. That is, they actually found and performed a series of studies where they could trick the brain. So a very clever use of a mirror, and that is what won them the 2016 Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine. Now, the researchers who are neuroscientists are fascinated by the brain's connection to physiological response, and what they really wanted to understand was the satisfying sense of relief that you get when you scratch an itch. That's something that a lot of humans have all experienced and if you had the chicken pox or a ration that drive to actually have that scratch even though you know you shouldn't is a hugely serious thing and it's we've got a very interesting connection to both the physiological response of that area as well as the brain signal telling you that you you need to scratch this and so they were digging deep into what actually made that tick Now one of the things about an itch is that it's often caused by inflammatory things on the skin itself like a rash or maybe a mosquito bite and the thing is that if you actually scratch it that that inflammation might get worse and make things worse so you don't actually get any real relief though you momentarily you do overall you don't. Now histamine actually reliably elicits an itch from your brain's uh, actual senses inside so the there's an axon reflex inside your brain that gets sort of sparked off when you get an itch. Now, when you have uh, skin lesions that are inflammatory, histamine is actually released by the cells around that, and that essentially gives off that itch signal, which gets transmitted to your brain, and the parts of your insular and anterior cingulate cortex start firing up to go, hey, there's an itch, let's go scratch it. And under normal conditions basically scratching pretty much immediately attenuates the itch signal to your brain so the question then lies is it possible to scratch somewhere else to trigger the brain's response to ah okay I've relieved my itch but without actually scratching the area that's requiring that is there some way to sort of get around this and we have had some studies in the past which looked at the ability to scratch a remote area not connected to the scratch and see if we can Sort of relieve the, the urge inside the signals in your brain. And they had some success, but it's not really well understood just yet. So, get to really to get to the bottom of this. They sort of combined what they know about phantom limbs. And this is the sensation that uh, for people who have had amputations where they can feel a pain in their limb that is no longer physically there. And this is a very fascinating and very unusual type of response. And they sort of looked into this whole kind of idea. And to explore it, what they actually used was a mirror box, uh, where an area which had an itch on it was placed on one side, and the non-itch area was placed on the other. And this kind of mirror box techniques have been used to basically elicit synesthesia in people, or to help amputees and stroke patients uh, observe their intact limited in mirror box so they can help understand and get through their phantom pains that they're feeling so obviously if you have them in the mirror box you can't actually scratch the itch yourself so that's where the researchers came in and they tried it with uh left and right side and centre split and right split and having the head positioned straight down the middle or inclined to one or the other side and what they found is that they had the two arms there, one with the itch, one without it if that they saw that their arm with the itch was getting scratched through the mirror even though they're actually scratching the other side because of the way the mirror works, it flips it, and makes it look like the, the itchy arm is getting scratched when it's not. What actually happened is that they felt the relief of the itch. The The signal was sent back to the brain to say, hey, cool, yep, all good, don't need to scratch anymore, even though they'd scratched the non-inflamed arm. And they repeated this many, many times. Now, this is really interesting because it's got a lot of potential, actual clinical applications because obviously as we talked about before when you have an itch or you have a irritation or a skin disease or an inflammation there's a lot of psychological response trying to go into not scratch that uh, so and you don't actually want to scratch the area so this with this trick with the mirror may be able to help people who are suffering from this actually get that relief without actually having to make the scratching or the inflammation worse it also has a lot of other interesting. Applications for ways that the brain can be uh, tricked or adjusted using reflection and mirror to help uh, deal with things such as limbs or le- or inflammation scratching type of application here or a bunch of other things, particularly for people with such as atopic eczema uh, or even kids with chickenpox as a potential other treatment method for them. And so now it's going to require more study, but it's a great example of sort of taking something we all take for granted and sort of flipping it reversing it, mirroring it, and seeing it through a new light. Nobel Prize history, there's one country who are pretty much the undisputed champions, and for the last 10 years straight, Japan has taken home the gold in one category or another, and this year was no exception, with a fantastic world-inverting view developed by the researchers Atsuki Higashiyama and Kohei Adachi, who won the Nobel ignoble prize for perception for investigating whether or not things look different when you bend over and view them from between your legs now this research published in 2006 in the journal vision research actually gets to the bottom of a very very interesting topic and that is what is it like looking at the world upside down and between your legs and what they've found After using a number of different test scenes, including photos of people, of landscapes, of different types of individual objects like flowers, of a type of geometric pattern, of repetitive patterns or random patterns. And by asking 96 university students to sort of undertake a similar um, viewing between their legs and comparing it to results from a camera sensor, they could actually start to investigate whether or not people viewed them differently. And the results were quite interesting. That when you look, when the researchers found, when the people looked at the scene pictures, when they saw them with their head inverted, they actually appeared to increase in brightness by about 10% and increase in clarity by about 7% compared to normal viewing. But these changes didn't really resolve when you actually looked at just a random geometric pattern. It only really occurred with people or objects or scenes. Now, the problem is, though, that came with a trade-off. Um, they actually saw that when people started to look at it, uh, they, they lost the ability to, to discern depth, as well as... And you lose the ability to estimate size. Basically, uh, things tend to get compressed by our brain, and you not lose the ability to scale for distance. Still... It's a fascinating way and just goes to show that Japan always comes up with a new way of looking at things, even if it's upside down and back to front. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Teenagers are the best liars, plus you can use a mirror to help you relieve a scratching itch by not scratching your inflamed arm, and the world can look a bit clearer if you view it from upside down and between your legs.